0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash impact. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess. Whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes, or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable.
1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating
2: zoology in particular is really vulnerable to cultural bias and the victorian norms informed his idea of the sexes and so when he came to define them he branded the female of the species in the shape of victorian housewife because that was what was seemly at the time
1: that's lucy cook She has a serious bone to pick with her great hero, Charles Darwin. Not to mention the famous biologist she studied under at Oxford University, Richard Dawkins. She feels that both these men, in keeping with the culture of their times, characterized women as passive, a little dull, and not nearly as interested in sex as they were. So Lucy set off around the world, meeting mostly women biologists and researching how being female plays out in species as diverse as meerkats, bonobos, and songbirds. And she's now written a fierce and funny book about her adventures with the provocative title, Bitch, on the Female of the Species. This is going to be really fun because you're dealing with a subject that everybody is dealing with nowadays. Gender and sex. Sex. We've been dealing with sex longer than just recently. But you have a wonderful take on it, that it's so varied.
2: Yeah, I do. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I, and I think that the subject of sex, one of the reasons why we're grappling with it culturally is that it is incredibly complex, you know. So it's a lot more complicated than than we've been led to believe, you know. And, and, and we can see evidence of that across the animal kingdom. And perhaps when you see it across other species, it sort of starts to make sense a bit.
1: I thought it was so interesting that a large thrust of your book is how science itself has been shortchanged by the adoption of Victorian ideals about the roles of men and women, that it not only spilled over into our culture, but it spilled over into the scientific view of men and women, the differences among them it goes back even before darwin doesn't it doesn't it go it goes back to at least to aristotle yeah what did he actually say about women did he did he actually say that they were inferior
2: no, he didn't go as far as saying inferior. I think I think it took the Victorians to really ramp up the inferiority complex <laughs> <laughs> for the female of the species. There was actually a semblance of of, of, of of equality, I think, in Aristotle's time. But what the Victorians peddled and what still gets peddled today, and the thing that goes all the way back to Aristotle, is this idea that males are active and females are passive, and and this Aristotle felt was because the male seed the sperm is is active and you know swims about whereas the the female egg is is passive and sedentary and
1: just waiting
2: just waiting exactly yeah, just yeah. this sort of passive lump that's just waiting for this active male to come and activate it you know and, um, and and Darwin would no doubt have have read Aristotle's work. I mean there's no way that he wouldn't have read read that and been informed by that and of course informed by the culture of the time because you know we get most of our ideas about the differences from between the sexes from Darwin. You know, he's the godfather of evolution and and you know, one of the greatest scientists of all time. His theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest theories ever. But he he was also a man of his time. And this was the thing that was so fascinating to me as a student of evolution. Darwin's my academic hero. You know, I mean, I thought he was infallible, his science was infallible, but apparently not. You know, that you know, zoology in particular is. Is really vulnerable to cultural bias. And the Victorian norms informed his idea of the sexes. And so when he came to define them, he branded the female of the species in the shape of Victorian housewife, because that was what was seemly at the time, you know. Um, and, and and it's astonishing to me, and, and I think a real eye-opener to think that if a if a if a scientist is brilliant and meticulous as Darwin can be influenced by culture, then, you know, then all science is vulnerable to it, I I
1: think it's so interesting that among the smartest people of any given time, they're not necessarily protected by their intelligence from bias. A good example is the, the male biologists who were studying blue jays and refused to see what was in front of their eyes Tell me more about how that went.
2: It's actually the pinion jay, not the blue jay. So the pinion jay is this social bird found in North America. And like most social animals, they must have some kind of hierarchy. Otherwise, their society would be chaos. And so the the, the two ornithologists who were studying the pinion jays, you know, wanted to decode this dominance network. And so they went looking for the alpha male, because that was, that was what you do. There's a dominance network. There's going to be an alpha male at the top. So they you know, they were were looking for fights between males establishing some sort of dominance matrix, but they couldn't find any aggressive behavior because apparently Pinion J males were committed pacifists. And even when they started trying to goad territorial wars between males by laying out tasty treats of greasy mealworms and stuff, still the males refused to fight. And when it came to them doing their sort of dominance matrix, they had to use the gradation of behavior as what amount to dirty looks between males. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, not exactly Game of Thrones stuff, but they're like, yeah, well that, that, that male, he definitely gave like an annoyed look to that one. So they sort of dutifully recorded all this behavior but the funny thing about their their data is that they had seen aggressive behavior that that it was a lot more aggressive than dirty looks they'd seen birds fighting mid-flight and fall to the air pecking each other viciously when they hit the ground but they didn't include those animals in their dominance network because they weren't males they were females and so of course what would that have to do with with dominance behavior? Um, and instead, they attributed this what they described as testy female behavior as um, avian PMS. <laughs> 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 we call it we call it pre breeding syndrome, avian PBS. You know, and of course, there's no such thing as avian PBS. You know, but they were just viewing the the birds through this paradigm that only the males would be involved in dominance, and of course the evidence was right there that females were were contributing to a dominance hierarchy with their behaviour, but they just couldn't recognise it, you know. So, And these are a pair of excellent scientists, you know, but they just, they they were sort of, you know, they, they couldn't see outside of the pinhole camera that they were looking through, basically.
1: Female passivity, that notion, which you can see in humans, is, is not the rule.
2: Precisely.
1: The sage grouse. How did that lead to understanding female passivity better?
2: Oh, I'm so glad you asked about this, Alan, because it's such a fantastic story. The paradigm that Darwin set up was that you have, you know, sexual selection, which is, um, you know, an evolutionary force that that creates some of the most sort of spectacular things in nature, like, um, you know, the peacock's tail and the antlers of the stag as a result of male competition, males fighting over over possession of um, females, of access or possession of females. And then Darwin said that females would also choose a, a, a male as well, but they'd be the winner. So it, it, there was still, even though he was giving females agency, he also, he believed that they were passive as well. So it was was sort of doing a dance around this a little bit. There would be some element of female choice involved, but it would be a kind of, the female would sort of acquiesce to the winning male, basically. So um, the sage grouse are a great example of, of, of these sort of ludicrous courtship rituals, and because um, they're calif- you, you get them in the sort of um, Midwest, and they are a ludicrous—a ludicrous bird. Just a ludicrous. The males are just ludicrous because they have. Why are they, they ludicrous? They, they're about the size of a turkey, and they've got like this sort of spiky fan tail. But the ludicrous thing about them is is that they have this inflatable throat sac that they gulp down. Masses of air and blow it up like a big balloon. And when it's fully inflated, th- this is covered in white feathers, apart from two circular sections which are bald and pop forth, basically like a pair of nippleless shop dummy breasts. <laughs> and then they slap these together and they make this doink 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 noise.
1: And so, I, well, I don't know about you, but I would find that irresistible. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I had to control myself when I went <laughs> out. to state grab, you know, <laughs> there were unnatural urges, you know. But anyway, so, so the males basically do this, inflating these sort of, you know, these sort of doink, doink, um, you know, that they slap together, and they're doing this sort of body popping and 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 dancing to their own beatboxing beat, you know. And what makes the whole scene even more hilarious than the ludicrousness of what they're doing um, is the females look like they're completely uninterested. You know, they're these little, you know, they're completely <laughs> classic little brown jobs, and they're just like pecking away in this desultory fashion. Do you know what I mean? And like, while well, the guys are furiously, you know, body popping and doink 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 and slapping their sacks together, you know, and the, the females look like they they're not interested. It looks like all of your classic Victorian stereotypes, right, that the males are competing with each other and the females are being passive and one of them is just going to, whichever cock wins is going to be the one that gets all the sex. Gail Patricelli, who's this amazing scientist who's done a lot of research into female choice uh, at, uh, um, at UC Davis, She um, she decided to sort of, you know, try and decode this by building her own robot female sage grouse, her own fembot, basically. And so she got a taxidermy kit for a bird, a robot she bought online, and somehow a pair of spanks, All together, she created this sort of robot sage grouse that she then drives into the mating arena and was able to figure out that, that actually the females, although they look like they're not doing anything, they're actually giving off very subtle cues all the time. And so, and she's done similar work with bowerbirds as well, which are another, um, you know, another ludicrous species. And, And she's worked out that there is basically, there's a dialogue going on and that the males, it's not just about being the flashiest, you know, best beatboxer. You know, you're not going to necessarily win the female unless you respond to her her cues and you listen to her. So, basically, uh, you know, doesn't matter if you're a sage grouse or a, or a human. You need to
1: <laughs> need to listen. You need to
2: listen to what the females saying.
1: What kind of cues indicate that?
2: Well, in the case of Bowerbird, it was a very obvious thing that the female would make this kind of crouching position. And that would indicate that she she was receptive, it, it, you know, because b- before that, it was just thought that, that, you know, the winner just could claim the female and he won and it's ownership. But actually, you know, female choice. She's not just choosing the male that she wants. She's also choosing when she reproduces as well.
1: Yeah, I can see how operating under this kind of bias, because the culture hands you that bias, even if you're a scientist, holds back science, but it also validates inequality in the culture further than it already has been. The idea that females can be both fierce and motherly is not easily accepted, is it?
2: No, it isn't. And, you know, I think it's really fascinating is that these ideas of what is feminine, you know, like femininity is nurturing and sweetness and, 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 and and passivity. And, you know, it's, it's not being aggressive and competitive and dominant. Those are not considered feminine traits. But if you look at the animal kingdom, they're just as likely to be feminine as, as nurturing. And as you say, fierceness and and motherhood are actually two things that that go very well together you know um take meerkats they're a great example i think because everybody thinks meerkats are super cute you know they're like these lovely cute little funny things and there was you know the whole series that they become tv stars and they're cute funny antics (laughs) what
1: are meerkats really like
2: meerkats it turns out are there was, a survey, there was a scientific paper that came out a couple of years ago that found that of 1,000 mammals surveyed, including humans, meerkats came out top as the most murderous mammal on the planet. A meerkat, <sighs> every meerkat has a one in five chance of being murdered by a member of its own species, most likely its own mother or auntie or sister. The mother? Yeah.
1: Not the father.
2: Not the father. So yeah. So more homicidal than human males are meerkat matriarchs. Basically, they. what
1: what's their motivation?
2: A competition. Competition. So so basically, meerkat society. Um, the meerkats live in large family groups, and there's a dominant female, and she wants to monopolize all breeding, and she wants to co-opt all the other members of her her clan to helping to facilitating her. Breeding as much as possible. So she she basically rules with an iron fist. And if any females that are below her, get pregnant like her sisters or her daughters then she will kill their babies and evict that female from the group and which is tantamount to a death sentence and then the female is allowed to return only if she wet n- nurses her murderous mother's babies basically so, hmm. so that and, and in that way she's able to sort of you know produce way more litters because you know she's not having to expend the energy on lactation herself and so You know, it's called, ironically, it's known in scientific terms as a cooperative society, but it's more despotic (laughs) than cooperative.
1: (laughs) Cooperative, you do exactly what I say.
2: It's exactly, just like Stalin. It was a cooperative society.
1: (laughs) That idea of unexpected, at least given the current model for women, the unexpected dominance is in the the two primates that are closest cousins to us, the chimps and the bonobos.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's just the most fascinating story, I think, because I, I really felt, and, and it's really fascinating as I was writing and researching this book, I became aware of my own cultural bias. I mean, I sort of assume males to be dominant. You know, that's culturally, that's what I've learned. And even someone, you know, who studied zoology, and, you know, that, that still is sort of imprinted on me. But yet when we look at nature, you know, that just isn't, it isn't the case. You know, there, there are situations where males are dominant, but there's also situations where females are dominant for a number of reasons. And sort of one of the old sort of ideas was that dominance is associated with size. So where you have males that are bigger than females, um, they're always going to dominate females. And and so, and, and that has a repercussion on, on how we view humans, right? Because males are slightly bigger than males are bigger than females and so therefore males must be naturally patriarchy must be burnt into our DNA Mm -hmm. um and and but but what's sort of the salvation for that, as you say, so rightly is is the bonobos for decades, the model for human ancestry was chimpanzees, and you know you've got males are, are, are patriarchal they're aggressive, they're a dominance network and and the females are 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 actually in many cases are afraid of of males. but there is another equally close relative of ours that's been less studied until recently, which is the bonobo um we share exactly the same amount of DNA. They are a society where, you know, females are also smaller than males. So you'd expect them to be um, dominated by them. But they're not. The females are actually um, dominant to males. And the way that they've achieved this is by forming this very powerful sisterhood that is, 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 is t- because females would naturally be competitive with each, with each other, but the, the competitiveness has been dampened because the females are having sex with each other so they form this incredibly robust sisterhood, um, that is able to overpower the males. And so at feeding times, the females eat first and, 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 and they are also, you know, they're the kingmakers and, and, you know, the feet, the females are basically in charge. So you know I'm not suggesting that that we all start having sex with each other. But it definitely shows the power of the sisterhood. Do you know what I mean? And that you know it, it's a beacon of hope for, for those that sort of you know want to to feel that that, that equality is is possible because the bonobos have uh, have have found a way.
1: When we come back from our break, Lucy Cook tells me how research in species as different as songbirds and lions has busted another myth, that females are mostly monogamous and that they only have sex to get pregnant. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message, either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lucy Cook. We continue exploring the importance of sisterhoods. The idea that the males dominate among the chimps, while generally true, is also countered by the idea that the the female sisterhood exists among the chimps, right? Yeah. Franz Duval was telling us about the idea that there's not only an alpha male, there's also an alpha female in every group, and she has the sisterhood of the other females. I saw this wonderful video of a male chimp, a big, a huge male chimp. Who wasn't behaving the way the females liked, and they all got together and drove him out of the picture.
2: Yeah, I actually interviewed Franz Duval for my book because he's, you know, he's he's a fantastic primatologist and he's been such a pioneer in, in as you say, in this field. But it, it, and it's not just amongst chimpanzees. Um, we now understand that, that in, in almost all primates, females inhabit their own hierarchy, you know, and, and it was ignored for a long time because whereas the male hierarchy is based around, you know, this sort of very aggressive, showy fight for dominance, in many cases with the female hierarchy, not in the case of chimpanzees, but in the case of baboons, for example, or macaques, um, it's a matrilineal line, so the, the females are sort of like the stable core of the group and have a hierarchy that that comes that, that's inherited. It's kind of like the British aristocracy. I mean, it's really rigid <laughs> and sort of unpleasant in that way because it's very hard to move up or down in it, and and it, and it really has a huge bearing on on your success as a as a mother. You know, the females that are sort of lucky enough to be born into the upper echelons of, of society. You know, they've got it all. They've got first dibs at food. They've got a kind of protection racket for their babies. And, you know, there's a real bearing of of where you are, in which class you are as to how successful you are as a mother.
1: But there aren't fewer and fewer baboons. They seem to be hanging on in spite of an unequal society. So it seems to me that it would be very easy for a culture that values dominance and aristocracy of the ruling class would be able to use these studies to justify their behavior.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is you've got to be really careful about drawing comparisons from animals to humans, you know. And, you know, there are a bunch of very famous evolutionary psychologists who really love to go, all because animals are doing this, therefore humans do this. But I think that what the bonobos and the chimps and, and show us is the flexibility of these systems right you know and and, and as you say i mean as franz deval has has discovered you know that there's a, there's a network there's a there's a hierarchy there's always alpha females as well and mm. you know chimps in the wild often you have um, you know, male dominance. But if you put chimps in captivity, then it changes slightly. And then he, he studied this group of chimpanzees where mama was the kingmaker. She was, it was an alpha female who really kind of controlled the group. You know, you don't necessarily find that in the wild, but, you know, in 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 a, in a situation in captivity where, you know, there's lots of um, food around, then then the, then the dominance and the and the political structure changed, right? So mm. I think that's the key to this: is the flexibility of these systems. Is that you know being male or being female doesn't dictate one or the other particular framework. It's just it's situation dependent, really. That's what I think I've, I've discovered from, from writing this book is just is really understanding the plasticity of sex and its, and its expression.
1: Let me ask you a question about our everyday behavior that lurks in my mind as I hear about all of this. If we're equally related to chimps and bonobos, does that mean in our daily behavior we have a choice to make? In our society we have a choice to make because we're not, we're not driven more by one stereotype than the other
2: I think what the chimps and the bonobos tell us is is that everything is possible uh, and I uh, and so I, I I think you know I think it's, it's I, I, there's a brilliant anthropologist um at Princeton that I I follow a lot Agustin Fuentes and he you know he emphasizes with humans you know that we are biocultural ex apes I think it's a really ex apes Yeah I think it's a really interesting you know thinking about humans you know, we are, we are so self-aware. We have a, a, a sense, a level of self-awareness and the impact of culture is so great. I think learning about the animal kingdom is amazing because it can show us that everything is possible and then culturally how we choose to use that, those possibilities is, is, is up for grabs.
1: One of the things that we seem to be stymied by still is the notion that females are not promiscuous like males. And that's just not true in many species.
2: Yeah, I know. It's one of those, it's, it's really fascinating, because this is one of the ones that I was taught at university um, by Richard Dawkins, no less, as a, huh. as a universal law, back, which is the idea that because sperm, you know, males produce lots of sperm, that therefore they're wired for promiscuity, whereas females, because we produce a fewer amount of energetically expensive eggs, we're going to be choosy and chaste. And that's like you know, and this 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 idea is is a sort of universal has has had universal law status, um, and and all and 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 it isn't true. But but overthrowing that paradigm. Is taking time. I mean, I think culturally, it's still something that we understand as truth, right, amongst human culture and, and amongst zoology. We now we now know that females are are more often not polyandrous; that they will, their multiple mating is is the preferred strategy. Um, But but finding this out, you know, that the scientists involved in busting this myth really had to fight to overthrow the paradigm. So one of the people involved in that, key scientist, was Patricia Goati. She's this amazing, fantastic um, professor. Um, I I think she's uh, uh, Emeritus UCLA now. But um, she, back in the 1980s, just when we discovered for, it was used for, DNA fingerprinting was used for forensics. And she was like, hmm, that's interesting technology. You could use that technology on songbirds to see if a clutch of eggs had one father, right? Because, you know, songbirds are always thought of as a sort of paragons of monogamy. You have like a male sings his heart out, tracks a female, then together they build a nest and raise the chicks. And, you know, they look like they're, they're, they're in this monogamous relationship. And she suspected that they weren't. And her subject was the bluebird, right? It's the eastern eastern, um, uh. Uh, 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 eastern blue... Yeah, blue, blue, is it eastern bluebird or blue jay? I always get them muddled up. Anyway, it's the zippity doo bird. So, and she... <laughs> uh, it's blue. Yeah. So it's like as all-American as apple pie. Do you know what I mean? And then what <laughs> Patty does is she calls her a Jezebel because she discovers that actually a clutch of eggs has several fathers, right? So, so this news... You know, when she presented this at, a, at an ornithological um, conference,
1: how was it greeted?
2: It was. She was. People just didn't believe it. They were just like, "Well, that can't be possible." And and the only way that that can be possible is the females are being raped. That's the only way that that's uh. possible. Um, and when she's like, "Well, that's that's not that's not possible because birds are about you know, songbirds have no need for a Me Too movement because it's almost impossible for sexual coercion to take place because males don't have a penis, both sexes have a sort of utilitarian hole called a cloaca, those have got to be lined up. The male's got to balance precariously on the female's back, and then they've got to do this thing where they avert their cloacas in what's called a cloacal kiss, and it's all—it literally,
1: like, literally takes two to tango.
2: It takes two to tango. You just can't, you can't force the female. If she doesn't want to get involved. She's going to fly off at any moment, you know. So, so it was ludicrous the idea that they're being, you know, raped. You know, it's just not true. But that was only, that was the only way that the the, the male scientists could could under it because how it fitted in with the paradigm, right? So it it took a load of other scientists putting radio trackers on the backs of birds and tracking female birds and seeing that they were leaving their territories and actively soliciting sex with other males other than their social partner to to, to prove that they were being strategic and actively seeking sex with, with other partners. And then this Discovery sparked what was called a, a polyandry revolution, where we understand now that you know, animals as diverse as you know, lizards to lobsters to lions, the females will, will their, their, their strategy will be to mate with multiple males for a variety of reasons.
1: Now, what, what are those reasons?
2: Well, fundamentally, there's the sort of the quest for genetic compatibility. So the more males you mate with, the more likely you are to hit the genetic jackpot and and find compatibility. But also because... It's a way of manipulating males. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was, it was actually Sarah blaffer who's another just incredible scientist who was amongst these early pioneers to, to stand up to these these um, um, old-school stereotypes. And she found it in langurs. actually. She was sent to India to, to, to find out um, about, to investigate um, infanticide amongst male langurs because we knew that this was something that went on, that males would routinely kill babies. Um, and she... she also- this
1: is something that's not uncommon among
2: not uncommon. many species. Exactly. I mean, it's something that doesn't sit well with us. It's not something that we feel comfortable with as humans. But it's 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 not uncommon in the animal kingdom.
1: And the idea the idea is that there's a drive to reproduce your own genes, not to allow the genes of another animal in your group get get dominance.
2: Exactly. So you know, if a male comes in and you know he he's inheriting you know her- inheriting females that. Um, uh, or he has females in his group that have a young young babies. They need to, but those females are not going to be ready to mate themselves until their offspring that belong to an, another male have weaned, right? So if he kills those babies, she's going to come into estrus straight away and is going to be much more ready to 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 have his offspring. So what Sarah Blaffer he discovered was that. That by the females, by mating multiply with with lots of males, that prevented infanticide because the males were less likely to kill the babies of females that they had recently mated with. and and so so mating with multiple males was a strategy for, for manipulating males and and, and and preventing infanticide. And we now know that that this is something that happens in over fifty species. Lions, in particular, have been well studied. That this this strategy of, of multiple mating to prevent infanticide is is practiced by 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 lions and langurs and, and all sorts of primates.
1: You're wonderful at communicating about all of this. And I saw in a bio of yours that you once produced and I think wrote comedy shows. Is that true?
2: Um, yeah, I did. I started out in I started out in British comedy. Yeah, I left university, uh, you know, studying zoology uh, at Oxford, and and then went and worked in British comedy, which was sort of a strange route for a, for a scientist. But possibly I didn't become a scientist. I became a science communicator, and so maybe that that um, that helped because I do I I, I love humour, and I think it's um, you know, I like to sort of tell stories that that um you know, reach a wide audience. And I think if you can make people laugh along the way, then you can slip in quite a lot of information. It makes the process of learning a little less tough.
1: Yeah, and I also think, as far as communication is concerned, when you write comedy, you're managing expectations and you're aware of how it's getting into the head of the person listening. And that really is crucial, I think. And there's nothing like the structure of a joke to do that in a specific way. Did you write sketches or what What, what kind of comedy were you involved in? Um,
2: yeah, I worked in a lot of sketch comedy. Yeah, I did. I hit a kind of a golden era of British comedy that I'm in early on in my career and I was really privileged. I worked with a lot of brilliant, iconic British comedy shows. So um, I, I can't help, I have to really train myself in and not and and, and not pander for the panda for the gag all the time <laughs> people who read my books probably think that can't believe that that's true because because you know but i do actually have to restrain myself
1: <laughs> this is a really engaging conversation and we're running out of time unfortunately but we always end every show with seven quick questions roughly related to communication you, you game
2: yeah i'm game okay
1: what do you wish you really understood?
2: Oh, the impact of culture on biology.
1: Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: Oh, I think you have to gently coax them towards another set of facts, explain something gently and persuasively.
1: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: That one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Find that hard to believe, but okay. (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Oh, I mean, I can stop because I'm I am the compulsive talker in the room. So maybe you you don't bother. Question, Alan. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's say you're at a dinner table, sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation?
2: I think you try and notice something about them and ask them about how they feel about something.
1: I've done that many times. How did your nose get that way? (laughs) (laughs) It always leads to something good. What gives you confidence?
2: Oh, gosh, what gives me confidence? Um, I think age actually gives me confidence. Ah. Yeah. I think just, just having got this far and having been right enough makes me feel more like I, I, it gives me confidence.
1: Good. Last question. What book changed your life?
2: Uh, well, I'd have to say on the Origin of the Species, you know, I'd have to say that that Darwin's, you know, I, 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 evolution is my religion, and uh, and uh, and and despite Darwin's failings as a for being a Victorian man, I I still think he's he's one of the greatest scientists of all time, and so his 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 book on the Origin of Species, it, it's it was a game changer for me.
1: This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Lucy.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic questions. Really thoughtful. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
1: you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Lucy Cook is an award-winning producer, director, writer, and presenter of wildlife documentaries, as well as a best-selling author. She also has a thing about sloths, as you'll see if you visit her website, lucycook.tv. Her new book is titled, Bitch, on the Female of the Species. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Carl Bergstrom. He's become an eminent authority on the various ways we miscommunicate with one another, how we deliberately and destructively spread misinformation, or as he puts it more bluntly, bullshit, You know, we define bullshit as language, statistical figures, data graphics, other forms of presentation that are intended to persuade
0: someone by overwhelming them or impressing them with a blatant disregard for truth or logical coherence instead of actually trying to help you understand the world better. That's
1: bullshit for me. Carl Bergstrom and his crusade for what he calls calling bullshit. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want
2: to buy this place on a cul-de-sac?